right after the other, everything timed, even to the second. I've served and preached in those kinds of places. And I certainly value the expeditious use of time. I do. But I really do value the freedom of the spirit. Amen. Where the saints of God can soak up the spirit of God. I, uh, it's nice to have shrimp and uh, tilapia and all that other kind of thing, what they call fine dining, T-bone steak, all that. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But uh, I, I like to have collard greens, cornbread, neck bones. It's just a joy to get some neck bones today. It really is. Pastor Venice, thank you for this invitation. I'm glad that the Lord let me be here today. You are, and I've said this to you before, so everything that I say will be overheard by the rest of us. You are truly one of the finest pastors, preachers, and persons that I have ever met. preacher and a very caring pastor, but not necessarily be a good person. You are an excellent individual who has lived out the gospel. And so I'm grateful that you allowed me to be your father. Amen. I know it's by divine appointment, but you could have denied it. Thank you for loving me and accepting me. To your wife, Sister Portia Venice, I, I cherish those times in the past when uh, Deacon Pitts and Deacon Roy Phillips Jr. and I would come to prayer meeting, and the highlight of the prayer meeting would be when you prayed. I remember those times. I'm grateful for the presence of my wife. I want you all to know that she represents the Lord as a queen, as a classy lady, Amen. as a godly lady. Amen. You don't have to be around her long. You can just look at her and see that. Amen. Amen. That's just her. She doesn't try. It's effortless. And so we are grateful, whether it's on an international scale, where she teaches and uh, shares with people, particularly women, whether it's a national level or whether it's a local level, she is an individual who's faithful. Her greatest, uh, her greatest, uh, fondest song is Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And I think the reason for that is because she's faithful. If Wanda Taylor Smith says to you that she's going to do something, then you can go to bed. Sleep on it. It's going to be done. And it's going to be done in a classy way. The word mediocrity does not exist in her vocabulary. That's the way it is when it comes to her family. That's what she expects. And that is exactly what she portrays. I'm very grateful for all of you who are here. There's so many names. Names who are persons who are 
present in their absence. And so I will uh, decline from mentioning that. I wouldn't get through this. But uh, I thank God for, for them. They are here. We will never forget them. Ever, ever, ever forget them. The second Sunday in December, 1968, I joined the New Mission Baptist Church. That's 51 years ago. So this is my 51st anniversary uh, here. It's, um, this church has blessed me and my life and my family immeasurably. And I want to thank you for that. Now, I've been trying to preach for nearly 52 years. One thing I've learned is this, that a sermon can have an eternal impact without it being everlasting in its duration. It's uh, 1240. It's hot. I see y'all fanning. Y'all not stop fanning. It's hot. It's just hot. And you have a service this afternoon at 3.30. You have food that's cooked. You got to eat it. Amen. Amen. And therefore, I'm, I'm going to be biblical. The Hebrew writer said, and he asked a question in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell you about, about, about. So time will, will fail me. I, I have a sermon that I wanted to preach. It was going to last at least 55 minutes and 38 seconds. Amen. But uh, we're going to cross, we're going we're gonna to cut across uh, the territory. I want to talk about the other side of God. The other side of God, and the other side of God I'm talking about is love. The other side of, of love. From 1 Corinthians 13, I'm referring to the King James Version of the English Bible that was good enough for Paul and Silas and good enough for my mother and father. Good enough for Deacon Boyd and Sister Boyd. Good enough for the Hebrew children. It's good enough for me. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I become as sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and possess all wisdom, understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity I am nothing and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity it profiteth me nothing charity suffers long and is kind charity envieth not charity bothereth not itself is not puffed up is not easily provoked. Think of no evil, rejoice of not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part but when that which is perfect has come then that which is in part shall vanish away when I was a child I spake as a child I understood as a child I thought as a child 
But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. You may be seated. There's one thing that I've have experienced traversing literally this world in various churches and institutions, seminaries, denominational constructs. And it is this one thing, at least this one thing, that we have more passion for spiritual gifts than we do for the spiritual fruit of love. That we are more expressive about spiritual gifts and yet we are lacking in the spiritual fruit of love. And Paul understood this. He ministered to the church at Corinth. He would spend 18 months there laboring with them. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, concerning spiritual gifts, you lack nothing. You have every kind of spiritual gift there is to have. And Paul begins to tabulate and begins to portray the kind of spiritual gifts that the church at Corinth had. He lifts up 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and gives us a list, though not comprehensive, though not exhaustive, at least representative of the kind of spiritual gifts that they had. The gifts of prophecy, the gifts of miracle, the gifts of help, the gifts of administration, the gifts of tongues, the gifts of interpretation, the gifts of faith, on and on and on and on. And he comes to the end of chapter 12 and says in verse 31, but I show to you a more excellent way. And he wants us to know that that excellent way is not the spiritual gifts, but the spiritual fruit of love. And he picks up chapter 13 and tells us in verses 1 through 3 what production of works looks like without love. Verses 4 through 8, he tells us what it is to define what love is and what love is not. Verses 9 and 10, he talks about the perfection of love. Verse number 11, he talks about the maturation of love. And verse number 12 and verse 13, he talks about the permanence of love. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. So I've given you my uh, uh, exegetical, explanatory commentary on those verses, which would have taken another 35 to 40 minutes. So we're done with that. Got through that. Paul wants us to understand in chapter 16, verse 14, as he gets ready to close his letter. He says, let everything be done in love. Love has to be the thread that runs through the fabric of everything that we do. Because Paul understood that you can have spiritual gifts. And if you don't have them, Paul understood that not having spiritual gifts is for church to be impotent, anemic, weak, 
You need them. God gives spiritual gifts to the body and the church for two reasons. One, to glorify God. Two, to edify each other. There is no room for self-exaltation and self-demonstration to use a big word, ostentatious, to show off my gift. If it does not glorify God and it does not edify the body, then it ought not be used. But Paul understood not only a church without spiritual gifts is anemic, but a church without the spiritual fruit of love needs to be admitted into God's general hospital where it can undergo a period of redemptive observation and have a blood transfusion and be put on life support because a church that is almost dead or as the writer in the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 John would say Silas you got a name that you're alive but you're really dead so Paul understood in my words that I want to convey to you that when love a fruit of the spirit governs the use of the gifts of the spirit then God is glorified and the church is edified now if that sounds right if that sounds biblical repeat it after me when love a fruit of the spirit governs the use of the gifts of the spirit God is glorified and the church is edified Paul speaks to us about that even today. Paul ministered to the Corinthian church for 18 months. Before he got there, the Lord told him in the book of Acts chapter 18, he said, Paul, you have many people in the city of Corinth. As far as Paul was concerned, there were no believers in the city of Corinth. But Paul was able to preach to the people who were not there as if they were there so that one day they would be there. Because that's really what faith is. Faith is believing what is not and believing what is not as if it is so that one day it will be. You don't wait until God takes and bestows upon you what you've been praying for. You live in the day as if it's already the month, which means you go and worship now. Don't wait till the battle is over. Shout now. Don't wait till you get to church on Sunday. Shout now. Walk in faith now. And Paul, for 18 months, has been faithfully ministering to this church. This church was a messed up church. Do you realize that you are in the midst of messed up people? And don't look around, just look inwards. You haven't reached glorification or perfection yet. You are growing and being conformed to the image of our dear son. Look who Paul ministered to. He ministered to individuals who had party followership. Clicks as we call them today. Some said, we follow Apollos. Some said, we follow Peter. Some said, we follow Paul. Some even said, we follow Christ. And Paul reminds them that Apollos made water, 
and Paul may plant. But none of that means anything unless God gives the increase. He served a church that had spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. Now the natural man or the natural person is unsaved, but the spiritual person is a person who is maturing and growing. But the carnal person is still enchained and still in prison and incarcerated uh, by the world to the point that that individual is not wicked but very, very weak. And Paul was patient with him. Paul knew that he was serving individuals who were taking others to court. He was serving individuals who were divorcing each other. He was serving individuals who went to the Lord's Supper and got drunk. He was serving a messy church. But why would he stay with them? Because he understood that these were not his people. These were the Lord's people. And the Lord was long-suffering and growing them so that they became like him. I think we make plastic saints out of our biblical heroines and biblical heroes. They get justified and they skip sanctification and all of a sudden they are glorified. They, they don't grow, they just go from justification to perfection. That's not true in Paul. Do you hear what Paul says? In Philippians 3, 12 and 13, I am not apprehended, neither am I perfect. But this one thing I do, I forget the things that are behind, I reach forward to the things that are before, I'm pressing, I'm agonizing, I'm straining toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You would not have wanted Paul to have been your pastor when he first got saved. You wouldn't have wanted it. And even though Paul gives us the spiritual fruit, the spiritual fruit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. <laughs> he will have to admit that when it came to long-suffering, he was lacking. All of the fruit of the Spirit in him was not fully developed. And that doesn't happen until you pass out of this life and go into perfection. Look what Paul did when he first started his missionary journey. He took Barnabas with him and he took John Mark, a young man with him. And the Bible says that Pamphylia, John Mark, got um, a streak of cowardice. And he left at Pamphylia so that when Paul and Barnabas got ready to start their second missionary journey and John Mark wanted to participate, the Bible says in Acts chapter 15 verse 39 that Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas son of consolation, Barnabas son of encouragement, that there was a sharp disagreement. Now don't read that too lightly. The word, the English word is paroxysm. That means they were at each other's throats. Both of them filled with the Holy Ghost. Mad. Angry. And the Bible says they separated and John Mark was taken by Barnabas and Paul took Silas and Timothy. And yet, when Paul got ready to die in Acts, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, he writes Timothy and he says, Timothy, I'm cold. Bring my cloak. Bring my books. And bring yourself before winter. But then bring John Mark, my son. 
Because he's profitable to me. I didn't think he was profitable at first. That's why I wouldn't let him go with me on the second missionary journey. I put up the great prohibition so he can participate in the great commission. No, I see now what I thought was unprofitable is profitable. It took him a while to grow into long suffering. And some of us have a problem with individuals who are crawling as Christians. Particularly young people. I'm not talking about making sin permissive. But I'm talking about sometimes we try to clean the fish before we catch the fish. And we want young people to instantly be perfected. How long has it taken you to get this way? What have you and I had to lay aside? What way that we had to unburden ourselves? Why can we be more patient with them? Why can't we struggle with it? There used to be a time when people were in sin and they came to the altar. Even though a benediction was given, they called it. I'm going to pray through with you. They would stay there for hours if it took until an individual dropped that burden and gained confidence to say, yes, I messed up, but in the name of Jesus, I feel like going on. And we turn them away. And we think that their dresses ought to be down to the ankles the second after they get saved. Sometimes God has to, uh, what he does is to clean up your, he'll give you a, a new language. Now don't think that because uh, you using hallelujah and praise the Lord and all that, uh, that there does not dwell in you uh, a residual reservoir of some of those words. Oh yeah, no, you don't know, it's not planned there, but every now and then you'll take a hammer and you get ready to hit that nail and miss the nail and you don't say hallelujah. <laughs> My wife and I were, I won't tell you the place, but uh, we were there that afternoon, we preached that morning and they were having dinner for uh, the pastor. Wonderful, uh, aesthetically, beautifully decorated place. Everything was wonderful. And she brought over the tea and she got ready to pour it. And, and before she knew it, um, she threw it all over the pasta and spilled all over the table. And she didn't say praise the Lord. Before she knew it, it's... And see, that's, that's what you call an oops sin. It's not premeditated. And what you do is ask the Lord. It just reminds you that even in moments when you are not thinking about it, you need the Lord to cover you. Well, uh, here's a text, here's a text, here's a text. I'm cutting across the field. We hear this text. We know it really well, don't we? We think we do. We've heard it all our lives. We memorized it. We've taught it. We've heard it taught. We preached it. We've heard it preached. So we we figure that there's nothing God can say to us that's new. But the truth of the matter is, as D.L. Moody has said, it's not how many times you've been through the Bible. It's how many times the Bible has been through you. And when the Bible goes through you and you look at a familiar text, all of a sudden you see something that's unfamiliar. When the Bible goes through you and you read a text that's common, you see something that's uncommon. And when the Bible goes through you and you see something that has been mundane, you see that it is really magnificent. And you wonder, how did I miss it? You missed it because you can't get all of it. The Bible is too full. 
And what God oftentimes does is to let us catch up with his text. So when your experience catches up with the reality of the text, then it becomes a new text. There used to be a time I could sing James Cleveland's song and it didn't bother me a bit. I stood on the banks of Jordan just to see ships go what? Sailing didn't bother me because everybody in my home. I don't remember anybody in my family dying before I was 17. But now, that's what I'm talking about, seeing people who are here but not here. I don't mean just in my family. I'm talking about people who are in my family but not biologically connected. The text becomes real and new and innovative. And this text wants to speak to you and me in a fresh new way for, so that we can see a different facet of the diamond of its beauty. When we read this text, we have images and glimpses of cummerbunds and uh, tuxedos, of wedding dresses and floral bouquets. We think of weddings. Originally, Paul did not have a wedding in mind. Had nothing to do with a wedding. Nothing. What Paul wants to do with this text is perform corrective surgery on the Corinthian church who had all these gifts but the fruit of love, that spiritual gift was lacking and Paul wants to address that. Uh, we, we look at a text like this and of course we we have engraved in plaques we put on our wall 1 Corinthians 13. Sounds so good sounds so romantic because romance for us for the most part is feeling. We are setting dead on sex o'clock. That's what romance is. It's feeling. But in the Bible when it comes to love love is a verb that carries out the action of a noun. It's a verb. It's commitment. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you that you love, that's a verb, one another as I have loved you. And in verse 35, he says, by this shall all men and women, boys and girls, know that you are my disciples, verb, if you love one another. It's a verb carrying out the action of a noun. It's, it's not just a noun, a feeling. Uh, I say to young men, um, make sure you don't marry for the shape because the shape will ship out one day. And you're laughing at that. You're laughing, you're laughing, you're laughing, you're laughing. You're laughing, you're laughing. You're laughing. I'm serious. Don't get to the place where it's love at first sight. That, that could be real, but you better take a second look. Because you're going to be looking a long time. You want to make sure you marry someone, not just uh, for the feeling. Uh, he's debonair. Uh, the chest definition, as my wife calls it. Because the chef definition will be demoted. It'll be there, but it'll fall down. You need more than chest definition. You need somebody. When you get old enough and you're not able to walk, somebody that'll put you in a wheelchair and push you down the aisle. 
cleanse you. Bathe you. When you don't even look good. See, because after a while, you got to face it. I don't care how much Grecian formula, number 44, Lady Clara, all you have, how many facelifts you have to get all the wrinkles out there. Sometimes the wrinkles ain't going to come out. It's got to be. You see, if you, were, if you got married in India, you would not have even seen your bride until the day you married her. You had to learn to fall in love, but be committed first. So when we look at a text like this, it's okay to look at it in terms of Mariology. Ah, marriage, wonderful. But it is Paul doing corrective surgery on the Corinthian church. Feeling. Some enchanted evening, you will see a stranger, you'll see a stranger about the crowded room. And somehow you'll know, you know even then, that somewhere you'll see her again and again. Some enchanted evening, someone may be laughing, you will hear her laughing across the crowded room. Then fly to her side and make her your own. All through your life, you may dream all alone. Who can explain it? Who can tell you why? Fools give you reasons. Wise men never try. Feeling some enchanted evening. Feeling the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. B.B. King, I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. That's Domino, the righteous brothers. You lost that loving feeling. Oh, that loving feeling. Oh, that love and feeling and now it's gone, gone, gone. Oh, 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 oh. And now your song is stormy weather. I just can't get myself together. It just keeps on raining all the time. And if you don't have anything beyond feeling, then you and I are in deep trouble. It's not only with marriage, it's with friendship, it's with life. You spell life L-I-F-E. There's an in the middle yes. there's some things that are iffy yes. so if the storms don't cease and if the winds keep on blowing in my life yes. my soul is still anchored in the Lord these spiritual gifts are given by the spirit and so are the fruit the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, kindness, faithfulness, all nine of them. I asked Reverend Benners to bring something up here, and he's hitting it, I don't even see it, but that's all right. That's all right, don't worry about it. He may have eaten it, it was an orange. <laughs> I did have an orange at one time. There were eight slices and a peel that held the orange together. I really believe that love is the peel. I'm not trying to be cute. I believe love is the peel that holds together joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, kindness, and faithfulness. Paul says, even though you have faith, 
that could remove mountains. He's referring to Matthew 7, 20, where Jesus said, if you had just the uh, faith of the size of the mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be thou removed, and to be cast into the sea. Paul says, if you, you had that kind of faith to remove mountains, but you didn't have love, it doesn't profit you anything. And though you had a voice that was so great that it could do more memorex than crash and uh, break glasses. Uh, but if you don't have love, those are the voice of angels and of men, eloquent, etc. You become as a sounding brass or tingling symbol. What Paul is referring to there, there I am getting into the explanation and I don't have time for that. But uh, Paul was really saying that the kind of music that was heard in these pagan temples in Corinth, because Corinth was a Las Vegas of the first century AD, everything you wanted was in Corinth. On Mount Corinthus, there was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. A thousand prostitutes would come out. They were sacred prostitutes. And come down to the city of Corinth when the sailors came. And the sailors brought their pagan gods and they, they brought their wares themselves. And a kind of sacred prostitution took place there. Drunkenness, debauchery, you name it, it was there. And they go into the temple and they hear this music. It was like sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. It was incoherent. There was no harm at all. And Paul says when you have that kind of voice but you don't have love then you sound like that. And it makes no difference what you have, Paul says. It means nothing. So the appeal is love. But joy. Joy is love rejoicing. Love, joy, peace. Peace is love resting. Love, joy, peace, long suffering. Long suffering is love waiting. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness. Gentleness is love touching. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness. Goodness is love giving. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness. Meekness is love under control. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, kindness. Kindness is love embracing. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, kindness, and faithfulness. Because faithfulness is love being consistent. And love holds together these eight spiritual fruit so that they serve sweetly, nourishingly, as the way that all of these gifts are being used for the glory of God. And now let me say this very quickly. You cannot do, Robert Smith or any of us, you cannot, none of us, I'm, I'm say this to you, I know it's true, none of us live perfectly to uh, say that I have arrived at the place of these gifts. All the fruit, we have not, we are growing, we are growing, we are growing, we haven't reached it. Now that should not cause us to be complacent. No, there ought to be something that's in us that thrives, that strives, that climbs, that's not satisfied with our level of spirituality rather than always offering that weak excuse, I'm just weak, you know, the Lord knows my heart. No! 
us ought to be in a place right now of repentance. I don't know why we think that the only people who repent are people who come forward to get saved. We ought to, as Christians, live a life of repentance. I'm not just talking about our emotions, I'm talking about our motives. I'm not just talking about our deeds. I'm talking about our, in our intentions, our intuitions. I'm talking about our state of thinking. Yeah, you say, well, I, I don't commit to these other sins that are empirically detected that you can see. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I don't lie. I don't murder. But one of the sins is coveting. Now, nobody can look at your heart and tell whether you're coveting. You can't see it. But God sees it. So whatever is in my life, in my heart, God wants to eradicate. That is, bring it out so that we grow into the, to the nurture, the stature, the fullness of Christ. One of our problems is we... We're satisfied because we can compare ourselves to certain others that we know that we can outdistance when it comes to righteousness. Don't stand next to me. That's a bad example. Stand next to Jesus. Tell me how you look. Tell me how you look when you stand next to Jesus. Okay. Huh. Three words and then let me just finish. There are three Greek words for love. The first one is agape, A-G-A-P-E. It means God's unconditional, loyal, covenant love. Unconditional. That God loves you even though you're not qualified for it. Who here deserves his love? Unconditional. Augustine, the 5th century bishop of North Africa, Hippo, says that no matter how good you are, God can't love you more. And no matter how bad you do, God cannot love you less. Which means his love is not mercurial. There's no mercury in it. It doesn't go up and down based upon what you do. Well, I've had a pretty good week, Spirit said, so that means God loves me more. No. I've been really bad this week. I've been complaining. I've been bombastic. I've been confrontational. All these things. And God says, I still love you. In fact, what God does is to draw us by love. We don't see that. That's why Paul says in Romans 2 and 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. His kindness. When I think about how, you know what brings me to repentance more than anything else? It's not this. No. No. Here's the fact that when I roll back the curtain of memory and show and God shows me where he brought me from and where I could have been. I sat there, I got messed up all through the service because I see where God has brought me from and where I could have been because of my stupidity. Because of my sin, that God can still say, I'm going to keep my hand on you. I'm going to work you out. I'm going to make you what I want you to be. We're so quick to give up on each other, give up on our children, give up on our grandchildren, give up on our great-grandchildren, and God will not give up on us. I don't understand God's love. But the second word is phileo or philia, feminine. 
verb, noun. It's the love that you have for your family and friends. The city of Philadelphia. Philia. Brotherly love, sisterly love. But then there's the verb eros, erotic. Sexual love between husband and wife. Hear me. Agape love has to condition eros love. Influence it. Because the Bible says, we've just got finished reading it, love seeketh not our own. Eros love can be so selfish. Please me. Please me the way I want to be pleased. Mm. It's about me. Please me. Mm. And what love, when agape love conditions eros love, it is how do I please him? How I please her? love has to also influence philia or phileo love when it comes to family and friendship you know the greatest battles we'll ever face are battles within the family no one will ever hurt you more than someone who's in your family no one will ever get closer to you than someone in your family you will literally open up your rib cage rib cage and let them put their hand on the pulsating heartbeat of your existence and they will rip your heart out you have to understand that and agape love will not take and run to the corner and lock up the door quadruple bolt the door pull down the window shades refuse to answer text messages which I don't do anyway <laughs> refuse to answer phone calls and just say I'm going to play it safe no one will ever ever hurt me again then what you're really saying is I'm checking out of life you trust God even though your heart is broken to get out and minister to people you take a chance on them disappointing you and after all they will and another thing I want to tell you you disappoint yourself I don't trust Robert Smith I don't trust myself and if you trust yourself you're making the biggest mistake in your life because Reverend Venice has just pointed it out in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah verses 9 and 10 the heart is deceitful that's your heart and desperately wicked that's my heart who can know it who can understand it? And then the answer in verse 10 is, but God knows the hearts. I don't know my heart, so therefore I present my heart to him and say to him, keep my heart. Keep my hand. Keep my soul, I pray. Keep my tongue to sing your praise. Lord, keep me every day. And so Paul is doing corrective surgery on this passage and saying to us that we cannot even live out 1 Corinthians 13 without the enablement of the spirit. Uh, I picked up this, uh, I won't even let you see the front of it. It's very attractive. It's uh, a workshop of two and a half hours to teach you various things. How to save our kids from the pipeline to prison. 
how to reduce and eliminate gun violence, homicides and suicides, how to reduce and eliminate drugs and opioid abuse, how to reverse adverse child experiences, how to move at-risk children and youth to children and youth that promise, how to reduce and eliminate recidivism rate among children and youth in the juvenile and adult judicial system, how to reduce and eliminate domestic violence, exposure and bullying. Oh, that sounds really wonderful. And you know what? I believe in education. I teach a whole lot of workshops, conferences, seminars. Wonderful. But this cannot be done without the Spirit of God. I don't know why we think if we have the right method, we get the right knowledge, we can do it. You cannot do it without depending upon the Spirit that enable you to do what you cannot do. And therefore, we come to God and say to God, empower us to do what you have for us to do. Well, Paul is doing corrective surgery. He's not really talking about marriage. Paul is talking to us about a church that's messed up. And a church that God is between and conforming to his own will. Back in 1842, a man by the name of George Matheson uh, was born. Uh, after a while, uh, he became engaged at age 20. Fell deeply in love and he and his fiance were going to get married, but he began to go blind. And when she confessed to him, I'm uh, going, when he confessed to her, I'm going blind, uh, then she decided that she did not want to live the rest of her life to a blind man. She broke off the engagement. It broke her heart. But the Lord allowed his sister to be his caregiver and caretaker for the next 20 years. And therefore, in 1882, 20 years after the engagement uh, was ended, uh, he saw that his sister uh, was getting ready to get married, which meant then that his sister would no longer be his caregiver or his caretaker. His heart was broken one more time. He had lost uh, his love of life. For his fiance had uh, given up on him. And he had lost his sister. For she decided that she was going to marry and be devoted to her husband. Now, what was he to do? His fiance was gone. And his sister was committed to another man. But that night, uh -huh, during the eve of her choir wedding rehearsal, he picked up the pen of inspiration and uh, dipped it in the ink of illumination and wrote this song. Oh, love that will not let me go. I chase my weary soul in thee and, and give thee back the life I owe that I may 
richer, fuller deep. For he found that in God there is a love that will not let you go. He found that in God there's a commitment that will not be broken. He found that in God no matter what you may go through, God will stay with you. Oh yeah. I see Jesus expressing this never-ending love. One Friday out on Calvary, he died to save me from sin. He died and stayed in the grave all night Friday. I know y'all get tired of this. You don't want to hear about the cross, but I have to close the sermon to tell you, had it not been for the cross, I wouldn't be here. Stay there. Day Saturday, stayed there all night Saturday night. But one Sunday morning, he kept his word because everything he had, he had to bar up. He left the shining coast in glory, and he who was rich became poor. He had to borrow a stable to be born in. He had to borrow upper room to have the Lord's Supper. He had to borrow a donkey to ride in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a cross to be crucified on. He had to borrow a grave to be buried in. But when you're honest, you give back what you borrow. He borrowed it on Friday. But Sunday morning, he gave it back. He rose from the dead. Roman chapter 8.